coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. We're recording this on June 1st, 2017, and this is episode 37. Politicoast is a podcast that explores what's happening in British Columbia and across the country. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at Politicoast Pod. I'm Scott. And I'm Ian. First, a couple quick housekeeping notes. I actually forgot last week in our discussion about the aquarium and the parks board that there's a bill in the Senate that is trying to work it through, sort of a private member's bill, but put forward by a senator, I think S203, but I might have that wrong. This is how little I followed it. It basically would ban cetaceans in captivity in all aquariums across Canada. And I partially didn't mention it because I haven't followed it that much. And I also don't think it's going to go anywhere because Senate bills are sort of like private members' bills that unless they find that sort of unique magic you know, number of people who care about it, sort of like the genetic discrimination bill, they just don't go anywhere. Thanks, Twitter, for calling us out. I think that was Nick Waller. The other big news is this has been a really, really busy week. We have a whole bunch of big stories that we're going to dive into, but before we do that, we sort of were thinking all week, like, oh, we should do an emergency pod. We should just like get together, except... We both have to work full-time jobs to pay the ridiculous cost of housing that is Vancouver and can't just sort of drop everything and go, oh, fuck it, we don't really need to work. But what we're going to do instead is beg for your money. If you want to see us do more, if you really like this show and the ramblings we do and you think this is valuable, we've launched a Patreon page at patreon.com slash And we're sort of putting it out there that if you want more content from us, pay up. And if we get enough, we'll do more. If we don't, we'll still do the same amount of, you know, one free episode a week. But if we get enough money, we're hoping to do interviews, emergency podcasts, extra deep dives that we've always been meaning to, but just can't really find the time to get around to reading that much stuff. Or, you know, throw tens of thousands of dollars at us and we'll go to poli-sci university and actually know what we're talking about or form a political party or something crazy. But for now, if you go to our Patreon page, kick in $2 a month. That'll let you get in at the basic ground level, get some early content or some bonus content when we get up, or go to the $5 a month. And I think I promised a little bit more for those people. Or there's higher levels and... We're still sort of playing around. If there are things you think we should be offering, let us know. If you there are goals you think we should be setting, let us know. But really, we just want to try and make this podcast a bigger success. So yeah, check out patreon.com slash politicoast. And at the very least, just think of it as buying us a beer every month. So getting right into this busy week, uh, we're going on to segment one, good faith and no surprises. Well, it's finally happened. The... Green Party has finally announced who they're siding with and basically who's going to be the next premier of British Columbia. This week on Monday, when we wanted to do our emergency pod, they made an announcement that the Green Party and the NDP had reached a deal and that the Green Party will be entering into a supply and confidence arrangement with the NDP. Uh, So... Supply, basically budget bills and money uh, bills, the Green Party will support as well as they will support the NDP government on any confidence motions that without that support will fail and 
caused the government to fall. On Tuesday is when the real meat and the text of the agreement came out, which is this 10-page document that we'll dive into in a minute because it's fascinating and an interesting look at how they can hold this together for four years, even with the slimmest of majorities. But before they could sort of have their press conference, Christy Clark announced that she would be having her own little press conference half an hour before, which, I mean, on Twitter is kind of the like, everyone got a little annoyed, especially the journalists, because they were already in the NDP green lockup, sort of reading this document and then going, oh, now we can't cover the current sitting premier making her announcement. But she gets up and no one really knows what she's going to say. And she sort of comes across as the subdued, almost beaten like she, a little humble, in fact. Yeah, which is, you know, the note she'd written to herself on her speaking notes. But she says, you know what, this needs to be done in the open and following our traditions. I'm going to recall the legislature, test its confidence, probably lose, and then it looks like we'll have a different government. In the questions, they basically clarified that. And she said... She plans to stay on as leader of the opposition in that inevitable case, which means she's not planning a resignation yet, although I have to wonder about how secure her position is right now. Well, I think that's going to depend a bit on how stable this agreement ends up being. If she's gambling that this isn't all that stable an arrangement and it's going to fall apart pretty soon, she may be looking at, okay, there's going to be an election and eight months from now, a year maybe. That's too short to do like a really proper leadership process, get someone new in, and hey, if this falls apart, you know, we were only one seat shy. We we can gain those couple seats back, especially once our past isn't quite as much in the limelight anymore. She's hoping that if it looks a little unstable, it'll be time to go forward, or she may also be thinking that, hey, maybe this isn't actually going to get all the way to the point of them bringing down her government and that this arrangement really isn't even strong enough to withstand the initial stresses on it leading up to the confidence vote. Yeah, her speech was an interesting bit of political theater. It's hard to tell how much of it was just her genuine sort of almost defeatist attitude versus how much was just like, I need to play this character now so that I can ride triumphantly later. Like she did say in response to one question, because I initially thought it sounded like she was trying to suggest, you know, you can't do these deals in the back room. And it almost sounded like she was going to put it back to an election and basically say, if British Columbians want an NDP green government, they should elect one. But in the question, she did clarify, no, if she gets knocked down in the legislature, she'll go to the lieutenant governor and not ask for an election. She'll just say, I was defeated. Do with it as you will, which everyone has sort of agreed that the lieutenant governor will most likely have to go to John Horgan, especially given this deal. Of course, there's all speculation that the lieutenant governor could go, well, they only have 44 seats, and if if they have to give up one for a speaker, it won't be stable, so let's just go to an election. But that seems like forcing a constitutional crisis unnecessarily, which is not something appointed ceremonial roles are want to do, I think. So the question is sort of Clark's longer game, her longer strategy. And I think it is that sort of hoping for the others to fail. 
the question for me is just what's happening inside her party. How content are the BC Liberals right now? Are you know her caucus and other teammates? Because one thing that's emerged, and there's a great Globe and Mail story that looks at the timeline of building this deal that came out, sort of who's meeting who, when and where, and it's all that behind the scenes stuff, and we'll link that in the show notes. But it kind of highlights that Clark left this to her team, whereas Horgan and Weaver were in the room together, and there was this closing in on an agreement between Weaver and Clark, but then 18,000 signatures were delivered to the Green Caucus, and they basically realized if they sided with the Liberals, their base would explode. And then Horgan started sort of offering a bit more and showed that their platforms weren't actually that different on a lot of key areas. And it sounded like they got into the weeds more, whereas the Liberal and Green policy discussions and agreement discussions were more just at this higher level, like, all right, we can get down to it on electoral reform, campaign finance reform, finally recognizing you as a caucus. But on the environmental things, it was still lots of outstanding questions. So this deal came together between Horgan and Weaver and was penned and Clark was sort of left leaving sad voicemails (laughs) on Andrew Weaver's cell phone. But maybe let's jump into the agreement a bit, some of the details in there, and then switch gears and talk about the speaker question to close off this segment. It's the 10-page document, which, like you said, sets up a supply and confidence. Greens have to vote for the NDP on any confidence motions, but it's almost it's much more than that because the Greens are given a lot of exclusive access to policy and are basically going to be consulted on anything an NDP government brings forward to a level that you would only really give to cabinet members. Like, they'll basically be at the cabinet table without having official roles, so they can still be independent. And that's probably good for the stability, even if it's pretty unorthodox. Uh, In terms of the policy, though, they're talking about sort of all the big things you'd expect. There's going to be a referendum on proportional representation done with the October municipal elections next year in 2018. We don't know what form that will be. That'll probably be consulted on and discussed into legislation. If I had hazard a guess, I don't think it's going to be STV because they'll just look and go, we voted on that twice and sort of trying to run on it a third time. The optics aren't as strong there. Definitely a chance we could go with that. We might also see them, you know, reconvene a, uh, citizens assembly or something or you know they just go with mpp which is the ndp's preferred option or look at some something else um when the prince edward island did their half-hearted attempt their half-hearted attempt last year they had a couple interesting proposals i don't kind of really fit into any of the easy to pinpoint ones like the um MMP plus leaders and a few other ones. And there's, there's like a dual member proportional I think they had. But we'll find something, I'm sure. They also want to bring in campaign finance reform, you know, banning corporate union and foreign donations, some lobbying reforms into the jobs, climate and a sustainable economy that works for everyone. They talked about 
raising the carbon tax by $5 per ton per year, starting on April 1st, 2018. And there's no end date on that. It just kind of keeps going. So at least four years, I would say. Yes. And, you know, could even go further than that. The original carbon tax system we had in place did that already. And it was only when uh, Christy Clark took over from Gordon Campbell that uh, she temporarily, well, temporarily stopped it for the rest of Canada to catch up. Although she seems to have not really been all that thrilled about stepping back up to the plate on it once the rest of Canada was starting to catch up. So if the carbon tax comes from the green platform, at least that rate of increase, then the rebate checks have been pulled from the NDP platform, and that'll go to those who need it. Basically, they'll figure out some formula. They're also going to throw the Site C dam back to the BC Utilities Commission, and they're going to ask it to reassess the economic viability and just, do we actually need that power? Are we just throwing money down the spillway? They're also going to immediately employ every tool available to stop the expansion of the Kinder Morgan pipeline, which is technically a federal jurisdiction, but there's a lot of kind of permits and whatnot during the construction phase that'll be needed. And I think Andrew Weaver in one of the press conferences even raised some constitutional issues that he thinks he can pull. So they're going to throw it to the courts and try and hold it up until Kinder Morgan just says, fuck it, we're not going to piss money away on this anymore. Or this coalition falls apart and some and another party comes in and decides, yeah, it's time to get going again on it. We'll just have to see. There's going to be a fair wage commission to try to get to $15 per hour minimum wage, which would end up matching what Ontario has just announced and Alberta is working towards. They'll work with the mayor's council to implement the lower mainland transit and transportation infrastructure plans. Yeah, they didn't specifically identify that they would be implementing the mayor's council plan that they that the mayor's council had put together on it, which is not surprising because that actually calls for a regional tolling system, which the NDP has not been particularly keen on, although the Green Party did support it. And it's kind of absent here on exactly which way the green NDP, not exactly a coalition, but coalition-ish government is going to be going. There's a few things that are missing from this document that were points of disagreement between the two. And as far as I can tell, the NDP line right now is, well, where we don't agree, we're going to try to bring in our own vision and our own platform. But where it'll get interesting is some of these are money issues, like tolling would, I imagine, be in a budget bill which the Greens would then have to pass. Yes, in theory, although it's also in a minority government situation, we may see, you know, amendments being proposed in during, you know, first or second, or one of the uh, committee levels where, eh, you know, maybe the Liberals and the Greens will team up to put an amendment through on the budget bill and, you know, tweak something here or there on it. So we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. There's going to be a lot of behind-the-scenes politicking and deal-making for sure. And in fact, that's actually one of the uh, most noteworthy things about this is they explicitly say in this agreement that anything not in this agreement, the Greens are free to do as they please and will vote on an issue-by-issue basis. Uh, next up in their sort of jobs plan, I'll just sort of get through it. They One of the big ones I want to highlight is the 
establishing an innovation commission, which is kind of vague as you can get, but essentially having an advocate and ambassador to speak on behalf of the BC technology sector in Ottawa and abroad. Whatever that ends up meaning. And I'm not sure innovation and government commission are necessarily things that go well together. So we'll have to see how that uh, shakes out. In the next section, fixing the services people can count on. They want to throw money at public health care. They want to create an essential drugs program to reduce prescription drug costs, which is the start of a pharmacare plan that I would love to see at some point. But we can't be too ambitious here, I guess, considering neither of them rely on pharmacare. They want to sort of help seniors, expand team-based health. And because they had all agreed on it, they're going to get a minister responsible for mental health and addiction strategy and a youth mental health strategy, which given the crises going on in BC is definitely long overdue. They're also going to put a lot of money into education, though they don't say how much, sort of restoring money to adult basic ed and English language learning, but then otherwise just like fund K through 12. Well, in fact, they don't really put a number on basically anything here but the carbon tats in this whole document. It's more of a list of aspirational goals rather than specific budget amounts. On their last one, making life affordable, you could say that eliminating the MSP premiums would cost a very specific amount. But, you know, another thing here is launching a basic income pilot project, which was from the green platform. We have no clue how much that will cost. And I think you would want to wait and to see how Ontario's pilot program goes. But doesn't look like they're going to wait on this. Well, it literally says it should be funded in the first provincial budget tabled by the NDP government. So that implies it should be pretty quick. And finally, their solution to the housing crisis is to just make housing more affordable. And they're going to do that by increasing the supply of affordable housing and take action to deal with speculation and fraud that is driving up prices. That's a thorough plan right there. (laughs) But overall, this is much more thorough than I think people were expecting. The Greens had talked about their sort of three line items, and here they got 10 pages of sort of how it will work, plus the meat of it is just priorities and policies. And so when Andrew Weaver was really hammering on, I want to deal for four years, this is, I think, where he was trying to get to. So he's probably definitely over the moon with this. I think John Horgan's even higher than that because I've not seen him not smiling this week. And he's got the biggest, like, doofy grin of just like, guys, I'm going to be premier. I didn't think it would happen. It's not supposed to happen. I'm NDP. So I love seeing John Horgan this week. He just makes me smile when he's smiling that big. But the trickiest issue is going to be that speaker question. Why don't you run us through the problem that we're facing? So right now there's one vote separating... The Green NDP, not what do we call it? Alliance. It's not alliance Agreement. Yeah. Probably alliance is probably the best way to go about it, describe it because it's not a coalition, but it's it has a lot of those similarities. But there's one vote separating the Green NDP alliance and the Liberals right now, and that makes it very difficult to figure out who gets to be the speaker without kind of upsetting that balance at all, and. The Greens and the NDP have said, you know, they're not really looking at putting up a speaker right now, and 
they would really want to because it eats into their extremely narrow margin. But the Liberals haven't exactly been eager to put up their own speaker either. So there's kind of an open question on who gets to be a, the speaker. And before anything can happen, before the throne speech, before any confidence motions or budgets or anything else happens, they have to select a speaker. Yeah, before Christy Clark can be defeated, this is the first problem. And the question of what happens if there's no speaker is sort of gone around Twitter and the political class commentariat of BC a few times now. And there's one case in Canada. It was 1908 in Newfoundland. Which technically wasn't Canada at that time. That's a good point. They had a tied legislature and neither side wanted to budge an inch. And eventually the lieutenant governor at the time just said, all right, go back to the polls, try again, see what comes out. And then one side got a majority. I think British Columbians would be pretty fucking pissed off at that point. And from what I saw of Christy Clark's speech, assuming it's somewhat genuine and assuming even if it's not that she wants to see the Green NDP alliance fail or collapse on itself, I could see the Liberals putting someone up just to get the throne speech, get the confidence vote there so they can lose it. And then that speaker, that BC Liberal could even say, I don't want want to be speaker anymore. We'll let someone else do it. And then we have to have the same discussion all over again. The speaker of the last legislature was BC Liberal MLA Linda Reid. And from everything I've read, it sounded like she enjoyed the role. It comes with a salary top up of like 50k a year. So that's one reason to do it alone if you're just purely self-interested. And it seemed like she was respected, so I could see her sort of taking it back, assuming she was happy with it. The best case scenario for the NDP and the Greens is the Liberals sort of leaving a speaker in there, sort of like when the Harper Conservatives first got in, there was a Liberal speaker for the first couple terms until Harper finally got his majority, and then they put up their own speaker, and that's how Andrew Scheer got the job. So there is precedent for the opposition to put up a speaker. Although that time... There wasn't a one-vote margin, which is really makes this difficult because Harper, the Liberals, were you know down one vote. It really wouldn't matter uh, at all. But you know this one's such a thin margin that not only is there the speaker question, but if any MLA is absent for any reason, it throws a huge wrench in the works. And you know votes are might be determined by whether or not someone catches the flu. Well, and. Even in that Harper minority situation, it did come to a number of ties because MPs aren't great at attendance. So the Speaker did have to vote a few times. And the general convention is the Speaker votes to maintain the status quo. What that means is basically keep a bill moving, so vote in favor of the bill, but don't pass it into law. Vote in favor of confidence motions because it's better to have a government than to not. In fact, we saw that in Paul Martin's uh, term is the speaker broke a time a confidence motion and kept the government in power. But what, where it gets interesting, I think, is the convention basically comes down to the standing orders of the House. These are sort of the rules that govern it. And the standing orders for BC right now say the speaker shall not take part in any debate before the House in case of an equality of votes, because they don't want to use the word tie, The Speaker shall give a casting vote, and any reason stated by him or her shall be entered into the journal. 
So it doesn't actually say that they have to keep to that convention. I mean, a lot of constitutional scholars would probably get mad at me for suggesting the speaker could just be partisan at that point. But in theory, if an MLA stood up and said, I'm going to run for speaker, but in ties, I'm going to side with the government. There's nothing that really says they couldn't do that, as far as I can tell. And it's not like the speaker can be dragged off, except by probably a majority vote of the House to change the standing orders. Yeah, but it does kind of raise the question is, would the other MLAs vote for them? Like In theory, there's probably going to be at least a few who aren't so partisan and kind of respect the institution enough that they wouldn't be willing to throw hundreds of years of precedent uh, out Unless... just, for, just for a slight edge in what is a pretty unstable minority situation. Unless only one person puts their name forward, in which case it comes down to that. The other interesting thing about the Speaker is the way they elect the Speaker in BC is through a preferential ballot, or at least a series of preferential ballots. And if they're down to two and they just keep tying, they just keep voting. Sort of like, I think, electing the Pope. So they probably put some white smoke out of the legislature at the end of it, too. And then we have a government. But that's going to be the thing to watch for the next couple weeks is, will anyone want to be the speaker? And I think the other thing to watch is, when will Chrissy Clark recall the legislature? In her press conference, she suggested between the end of June and the start of June. But she doesn't technically have to do it until September when the government needs money. But I still can't, at this point, see her sort of dragging it on. It sounded like she did want to get back to it soon, but... Plus, it just looks really petty and kind of undoes all the kind of humble and going to accept the will of the legislature that she had going during her press conference. The writs were just returned yesterday, so we'll have to see when she recalls the legislature and who will be speaker, if anyone, so that they can get down to voting Christy Clark out of her office. Of course, the problem could be is if the Liberals don't put up a speaker and the NDP does, she could actually win the confidence vote just with the numbers because then it would be 43-43. Or if she entices someone to cross the floor. There's a few different scenarios here. But yeah, in the case of the speaker situation, the precedent is the status quo, which would be to keep the government in power. So lots of intrigue, lots of stuff to come up. Please fund us so that if we need to do an emergency pod, we can. Yeah, that's kind of where the next couple of weeks look. But I guess going a little longer term, it's kind of some big questions hanging over how the different parties are going to play this and what's the strategy. I think the big unknown is how the Greens react in this and how they avoid the case of being just kind of swallowed by the NDP and how they maintain their independence and separate brand. Uh, if they can actually get the referendum passed in October 2018, that'll be a big help to them. But if they don't, they really need to also maintain their own kind of independence and brand and not be just those other NDP guys who aren't the NDP. Well, and I can see them doing that with a couple policies where they align more with the BC Liberals, things like ride-sharing legislation and a few maybe points on tax policy, like the foreign buyer's tax, for example. So if BC Liberals are smart, they're sort of also talking to the Greens still and, and going, all right, we're going to put up these private members' bills. Can we get your support? 
because that's the only way they can really drive it through. Of course, the NDP in this situation will control the calendar for what bills get presented when, so it sort of slows down the ability of the opposition to get bills through. But it's not impossible, especially when things are this tight. If I was Andrew Weaver, I would be looking for kind of a few big, high-profile pieces of legislation which I can get the Liberals on side with rather than the NDP to kind of build that kind of independence brand and really just not look like just being another part of the NDP. And then I suppose with the Liberals, the big thing is trying to find that crack in the green NDP alliance and kind of stress it as much as possible in the hopes it breaks probably a little more than a year from now ideally or time enough to recharge after the campaign or possibly a leadership race but definitely looking for that kind of weak point to needle and stress the alliance it's definitely a patience game for the liberals for the ndp and greens it's all going to come down to the sort of five words that underpin this entire agreement, good faith and no surprises. At some point, Andrew Weaver, John Horgan is going to hold a press conference in the next couple years, maybe even just six months, and say, oh, so-and-so acted in bad faith or sprung this surprise on us. They were withholding things from us in these confidential meetings or we can't operate like this anymore. And that's when... Whoever sees the advantage at whatever point will trigger an election and we get to do this all over again. Well, the other reason we would have done an emergency pod this week is our second segment, Everyone's Second Choice. On Saturday, I was in Alberta, which was a great place to be for this because I was sort of refreshing Twitter every couple minutes watching the results of the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership race come in. And it was fascinating to see how close it got because we sort of with that many candidates you sort of expected it to go to seven ten rounds but it went all the way to the 13th ballot and it was only on that one that Andrew Scheer pulled two percentage points ahead of Maxime Bernier. So for every ballot up to that point Bernier was in the lead he started off with a 29 percent and kind of slowly climbed up but and throughout the whole thing, Shear was slowly gaining ground, and and that was really Andrew Shear's strategy through the whole thing. Is he ran a fairly kind of inoffensive center of the road, basically be well liked by everybody's campaign, and it paid off for him because he got those second and third and fourth and twelfth place vo- uh, votes in just enough to, margins to overcome Bernier's initial. Eight point lead, I believe it was. Well, and Shear was also really good at picking up the sort of base of the Conservative Party, the various tractions, rather than really getting in lots of new members who didn't actually vote as consistently as you would have expected. It's the people who've been Conservatives for their entire life, or at least 10 years or more, who vote in large numbers, and Shear was one of them. In fact, uh, when the membership numbers came out, Shearer was kind of written off by a few people because he didn't post all that great uh, signups. He spent the lead up to the March 28th deadline basically campaigning to the base and not really focusing on the new membership signups, which everyone else was doing. And you know, a lot of people thought that was a kind of 
bad play on his part, rather than in that he you know didn't get a whole bunch of new people to come out and vote for him. But in the end, he tur- turned out getting that base, which would come out and more consistently vote, turned out to be the real edge he needed. Well, and you see it just in the map of who voted where, because the conservatives amazingly gave us all the data of their leadership races. So you can see who won what riding and what percentages. It's just fascinating. I mean, there were 19 members in Nunavut. Man, someone should have spent a lot more time there and trying to find them or even just <laughs> sign up a handful more. But it gets interesting because Shear was able to even beat Bernier in his home riding. And I think that was another thing that sort of hurt Bernier was he just underperformed in Quebec of what people expected. I think the conservatives in Quebec weren't really on board with his libertarianism, the kill the supply management, where Scheer came to the defense of supply management. He went, I'm on the side of the farmers. And for all your dissing it, Scott, it seemed like that actually just won the day in the right places because either the farmers still have some clout. I read stories that said, I don't know how true it was, that dairy farmers were signing up en masse in Quebec well, to thing- support Scheer. But I think the the bigger thing is people like farmers, and they like the idea of supporting farmers. Yeah, the dairy farmers are confined to a few ridings in Quebec and would have given a few extra points, but that alone would not have really been enough to push him over the edge. I don't think this is one of those races where you can look at a single data point and say that is the reason why he won. There's a lot of little things, you know, uh, doing well in a few Quebec ridings that uh, have a high concentration. Dairy farmers definitely played a role, but there was a lot of kind of those other little things being able to appeal to the parts of the conservative base that Bernier didn't. It it focused on not offending or not getting people off your side rather than kind of bringing more people on to it like there's just a lot of little things that really added up and no one thing really kind of pushed him over the edge sort of like how trump won in the states you can point to a lot of little things that if any one of these hadn't have happened hillary should have easily won it but all of them happened so we have trump and now we have sheer not to compare them like nikki ashton does (laughs) but to put them in the same sentence and while we're sort of on this darker vein Let's talk about Brad Trost and the 15% first-round ballots that went to Trost and Lemieux, the you know social far-right conservatives of the party, who basically campaigned on overturning gay marriage and abortion and all of that. And it's hard to know how many of their supporters ended up going to Shear in the end. I think some just dropped off, but they didn't go to Bernier because libertarianism, even though... I think he was starting to make some plays to that, talking about PC culture gone mad and all that. He's still socially libertarian, sort of let people smoke pot or whatever. But Trost did amazingly well. He got an incredible amount even here in Vancouver Quadra. I think he was in sort of the top three. Yeah, that was one of the things that actually really surprised me about was how well Brad Trost did. And yeah, Vancouver Quadra was kind of an interesting one. You know, it's a urban Vancouver riding. It's not the sort of place you would expect to find a lot of Brad Trost supporters. Eventually, though, the riding did end up going Bernier in the end. But it 
Trust did surprisingly well here. In fact, did surprisingly well in BC. There's an interesting graph put out showing the provinces in which Chong did better than Trost and vice versa. And interestingly enough, BC actually is on the Trost side, which is not really what one would kind of expect playing off simple political stereotypes. Yeah, here in Vancouver Quadra on the first ballot, Maxime Bernier got 26%. Michael Chong got 16.9%, and Brad Trost was right behind him at 16.75%. It was that tight. And then Shear was way down at 12.7%. So Trost knew where his supporters were, and maybe he went through the churches, but I won't imply anything untoward. But he knew where his supporters were, and they managed to connect because they have tight networks. And he got them out, and really surprised everyone because he was always written off as the also ran gonna put in the like bottom five kind of thing because brad trust so wild and crazy who'd still vote for that apparently a big chunk of the conservative party of canada is still fundamentalists and where it comes back to sheer is he's more traditional catholic or at least devoutly catholic but he you know has a family of five he has a perfect voting record from the Campaign Life Coalition and some of those kind of groups, and has made comments in the past about gay marriage being obscene, and all the kind of stuff that the Liberal Party is amazingly digging up, you know, day after day. And it's just not really been a good sort of couple days, I think, for Shear's image since his election. But he sort he sort of made during the campaign the look. I have your values, social conservatives. But they won't win in the same way Harper said. So I'm on your side, but we can't overturn abortion. We can't overturn gay marriage. There's maybe some things we can do about religious schools and tinker around the edges and make life better for you and worse for the gays and the atheists. But this is Harper 2.0. In fact, that's really kind of his was his whole shtick. Was he was very much kind of the I am the continuation of the Harper legacy, which is a brand that actually works fairly well within conservative circles, even if it's not one that's necessarily going to be all that appealing outside of it. Although Harper did win three elections, so there is something there. Against some pretty weak liberal leaders, and Trudeau was considered weak until Harper was just too tarnished to win, and it's interesting. So where does this go from here? Yeah, well, I think he's probably going to end up following the Harper mold in the sense of there's some issues that even if the base supports, he knows are political non-starters. And Andrew Shear generally seems to be fairly politically savvy and knows the things to talk about and the things not to talk about and which areas of the kind of conservative base should not be emphasized in a general election or kind of in the day-to-day running of a party. And I I see him kind of continuing on that mold of, yeah, the social conservatives are going to be around, but they're not going to be all that active a part of the face of the conservative party. Despite his fourth place showing, no one was going to put Brad Trost on the front bench. The question for me, yeah, I don't think, Shear is going to run on a overturn abortion or even bring it back up. The question for me is going to be how long of a leash does he let Brad Trost on? Because Harper kept them on pretty short leases and there would be the odd 
sort of private members bill or motion to sort of backdoor or start to look at these issues. But they were generally pushed down or let's not talk about or that. Or died on the order paper. Or... Yeah, and just made sure they didn't really get attention. Sheer as speaker seemed to be a bit more... Maybe he was just being fair and let them speak because private members should be allowed to speak. Or maybe he genuinely will keep that forward, this idea that, well, look, they're elected by their constituents. They should be allowed to talk. It's not the Conservative Party of Canada policy. And where this could go really wrong for him is if he does the sort of Daniel Smith thing of, well, we have the Lake of Fire candidates, but, you know, we're not going to legislate that way. We're just going to sort of let them say really homophobic and terrible things while still running under our flag. Yeah, the um, bozo eruption problem has been a thorn in the side of a lot of kind of right of center parties for decades now. I mean, the reform ran into that problem a whole bunch. The Wild Rose in Alberta's run into that problem with the Lake of Fire comments you just referenced and Harper's success in large part came with keeping those sorts of outbursts at a minimum and kind of focusing on the areas that the Conservatives typically do well and generally connect with Canadians on. And during his acceptance speech, Shear made a, you know, some comments to the effect of, you know, we're going to be a much more, you know, open party. And every part of the party is going to, you know, really have its voice and whatnot, which is the sort of thing you say after you win a leadership race, but whether or not that goes into practice remains an open question we're going to have to see. And that's, you know, one thing he's going to have to really kind of sort out and deal with it. And, you know, the liberals have wasted no time in trying to brand him uh, as being, you know, the extreme social conservative. And it's actually been really interesting to watch over the course of basically 24 hours, Andrew Shearer going from the kind of likable, you know, middle-of-the-road guy to this, you know, trying to be painted as this extremist in the media. It's just goes to show you how quickly there's an effort to change a political narrative. Well, it also goes to show how little attention people really paid to Andrew Scheer before. He was just kind of the consensus candidate that everyone is like, okay, he's not that interesting. So let's look at the shiny things like Maxime Bernier and Kevin O'Leary and Kelly Leach and... Even Michael Chong is shiny in a different way. They're more interesting to talk about. During the campaign, Shear was boring. Like, his policy ideas were weird and kind of silly, like trying to defund universities that don't do free speech or put Country of origin labeling on gasoline. So there's things that won't work. And he also wants to reopen the charter province by province to add property rights there. And we can get into that in the next section a little bit. But... That's actually, I think, one of his better policies he put forward, but a lot of them... But the way he was going to do it's not going to work. You can't just add rights to the charter province by province. He basically wanted to do a bilateral agreement one by one until he got a charter amendment, which just doesn't feel like how you're supposed to do it, even if maybe you could do it. Because you kind of create a two-tiered legal system across this country in that way. But they were red meat to the base, and so people ignored it because half of these policies people never stick with. The thing I'm going to be sort of watching for is what does he do with Maxime Bernier and his followers? Because that's clearly 
a different ideology of the party than Sheer, who was sort of the status quo. They're not totally irreconcilable because there's clearly, they're still in the same political party, but they have this sort of, let's take it in a more libertarian, more sort of flashy way. And Sheer is like, well, let's just keep being quiet sort of conservatives that just represent traditional values and all those kind of things. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And one thing that really kind of stuck out for me looking at the results was how much it broke down on the kind of urban-rural split with the urban ridings sending most of their points Bernier's way and the rural ridings going mostly Shear's way. And it does, I think, kind of highlight one of those sorts of things that's kind of established itself in the status quo of Canadian politics is that urban-rural divide and... The last two elections were basically won by how the suburbs won, and you know, Shear is very much kind of the status quo candidate. I don't see him really kind of upsetting that or being able to grow the conservatives' tent in the area, in kind of like urban areas or even kind of the suburban belts that are going to be important in the next election. Well, and I think that goes to the heart of what. Scott Gilmore was talking about with his frustrations of the Conservative Party as it stood sort of six months ago and coming out of the last election, that it was sort of out of ideas and it's not clear Shear has real big ideas to take it forward and it's still sort of playing to some of the social conservative things. So I'm going to be watching to see also what this sort of new conservative discussion becomes because it seems like the social conservatives almost got listened to more than the Chong new conservatives who almost like split and went every which way they could to, they didn't really have a home in either Maxime Bernier or Andrew Scheer. If anything, I'd say it was almost a little bit Maxime Bernier. I, from I, def- who I, was I definitely think Bernier picked up a lot of uh, the Chong votes out there and just talking to people out there like this there's a lot of people who are kind of placing Chon and Bernier kind of at, in their near the top of their ballots and more than put Bernier at the top of them but there's a lot of them who had of the Chon voters it was basically Chong maybe O'Toole and Bernier and kind of the next couple ones down and yeah I think that both of those candidates kind of appeal to the more urban conservatives and the urban voices, and it's I'm really a little disappointed that a more urban-friendly candidate didn't emerge out of here and kind of, at the very least, shaped things up a bit so we don't have this kind of stale urban-rural divide in Canadian politics. And the only other thing I really have to comment on is, for the most part, it seems like conservatives just accept the results, but there have been a couple sort of weird stories out there. There was one where a couple MPs are sort of questioning whether there were legitimacy issues, especially with ballots that got rejected, and then apparently some weird counting errors. Apparently the company that was counting the envelopes counted a different number than the ballots that were counted, and there were just these like discrepancies that were actually around the range of the difference in the win, and that's not to say it was biased in any way but and they're sort of pointing the finger at quote-unquote human error so if only we had more harper-esque robots running the counting system but i think the issue is 
they could have almost done a recount, but I guess for whatever reason, they decided Saturday night they would shred the ballots immediately. And so I don't think this grumbling, which is really just two articles out of dozens that have already been written on this or more, it's not really going to go anywhere because there's no recourse other than to try and have another election, which isn't going to happen for a while because that was a lot of candidates over a long time. And in fact, if I saw more complaints where it's the process that resulted in 14 candidates appearing on the final ballot than the issues surrounding the actual count. I mean, don't even remember the concerns there, but there's also some concerns that, you know, when you have that many people out there, only a couple of them are going to really get any media attention, and, you know, most of them are going to be pretty unknown, and that's kind of hurts the overall system and the ability of people to really kind of drill down into who the, the candidates are and what they stand for. And, you know, it's been proposed that maybe they should have done something like a first-round elimination, you know, knocked it down to top five or something and let them uh, sort it out, do it out, or... You know, even like uh, the UK Conservatives do with the caucus selects too, and then puts the vote to the members, which would have been interesting. We definitely would have seen a much different race if that was the case. Would have been sheer no tool. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. You know, that would not have been an unreasonable final result there. O'Toole had a lot of decent ideas in the campaign, kind of put together pretty decent, well-rounded uh, platform overall. Plus, I liked his UK, New Zealand, Australia, common travel area idea. But yeah, overall, I think there's definitely some lessons learned on how to go about the process and make the race a little more dynamic, especially in the end. Like Even people who followed the race were starting to lose interest around April. And it's just one of those things where it kind of got dragged out too long. There were too many candidates and... I think some candidates kind of shot their wad a little early and didn't really uh, perform in the final stretch nearly as well. And, like, you know, um, I think Ashley probably did an example of that with Michael Chan. Like, he put out a lot of interesting policy ideas kind of in the fall. And we didn't hear much from him in terms of new ideas or much else to say on it, which I think was just kind of disappointing overall in that... He brought some interesting ideas to the table, but he didn't kind of continue to get traction once those were out there. And maybe, you know, and there were a few other candidates like that that kind of put out some stuff early on and didn't kind of carry that through all the way to the end. And I think it also kind of hurt the overall dynamic of the race a bit too. But in terms of actually what was well done was the actual event itself, minus the letting it slip a little early who the final winner was, Overall, they kept up the suspense really well. This was all computer tabulated, so they knew two hours before they announced, but they kept the tension up and kept everything going throughout the whole event and made for entertaining watching. And Plus, the music was just good. Well, I heard people complaining it was dragged out a little too long, but those people are going to know nothing until the NDP drags it out over a month in the fall. <laughs> so, you know, it was done in... Two and a half hours, three hours, so Plus, that's yeah. pretty good. Plus, we waited two weeks to find out the results of this election in BC. Two hours really wasn't that bad, and yeah, they actually had a pretty decent soundtrack going, going through the whole thing, too. It's kind of country-esque cover of stuff, which, you know, actually, if anybody knows where to get the soundtrack to it, please, you know, let us know, because that was actually interesting. But overall, I think the convention was well done, even if they did tell the two finalists 
who won and then let them back out on the floor. And Maxime Bernier's lack of a poker face gave it away about 10 minutes before the final results were announced. But other than that, it was, I think, overall a fairly well done final leadership convention, even if the overall race left a few things to be desired. But I guess the big question now is, you know, where do we go from here? And does, you know, Andrew Scheer become prime minister in 2019? No, (laughs) probably not at this point, I think. Yeah, it's unlikely that a government that wins a majority on its gets defeated after one term. And Scheer's very much kind of the status quo, you know, well liked by the conservatives, but maybe not necessarily the person who will grow the tent very much. And, you know, I can see him maybe picking up a few seats, maybe, and going up a few points in the polls, but we're probably going to see a slightly decreased liberal majority next time. Or maybe we'll see Prime Minister Jagmeet Singh. Moving on to our third segment, playing with a Meech Lake of Fire. The Quebec government has come out with a proposal to kind of reopen the Constitution. Today, Premier Philip Couillard put out a big uh, document and suggested that, you know, maybe it was time to actually start talking about the Constitution and, you know, Quebec's five traditional demands and, you know, start a coast-to-coast discussion on the matter. This is something that we're either going to have to come back to in a full, like, deep dive sometime in the summer and probably find a constitutional expert to sit down with and figure out what's going on, or we'll never talk about it again because it'll just die a deserved death, or undeserved, depending on your view on the Constitution. Basically, it all dates back to, well, it all dates back to Confederation and before, but sort of the modern history, Quebec didn't really like or sign on to the Charter when it was patriated in 1982, and there were a couple attempts to bring it back, the Meech Lake Accord most famously, and the sort of Charlatan Accord that brought in some of the same ideas, but then dealt with some other things. The five things they wanted that you mentioned at Meech Lake are what they're still talking about. So recognizing Quebec as a distinct society, increased powers for immigration, limiting federal spending power, recognizing a Quebec veto over constitutional amendments, and sort of guaranteeing a certain number of Supreme Court judges for Quebec. And also that the Quebec government would have input on who those judges are. Yeah. All of those have sort of been done to some extent. The Harper government in 2006 recognized Quebec as a distinct society. Quebec's always had a little bit more say over immigration than elsewhere, but it's not constitutionally protected. Quebec fights a lot of court cases over federal spending power, though they don't have the ability to, say, ignore the Canada Health Act in Quebec. Well, they could. They, they, they don't want to uh, need health transfer. And Quebec is pretty much guaranteed sort of Supreme Court justices. The Supreme Court Act guarantees three Quebec justices uh, because of the Quebec civil law system, which is different than the common law system in the rest of Canada. But currently the Quebec government does not put names forward that the federal government then chooses from, which is what they're looking for. But overall, they've basically got like a lot of these areas have kind of already policy wins, even if they haven't been constitutionalized yet or go as far as Quebec wants. The big exception of that being the Quebec veto over uh, constitutional amendments, which you know, sort of exists because 
nobody actually wants to reopen the Constitution because it's a massive mess that stirred up all you know these sovereigntist sentiments in Quebec, caused a huge amount of headache for the Mulroney government when they tried Charlottetown and Beach Lake. It's just overall a very messy issue and once you start talking constitutional negotiations, all the provinces bring their own wish lists on what they want. You know, Quebec has their demands, but you know, you can be pretty sure Alberta will be coming to the table with a few things they want to see. Although with the Notley government, they're going to be different than the sort of 40 years of what the conserv- progressive conservatives in Alberta wanted. Though I still think you'll see some of them, like the issues surrounding the Senate and kind of the unequal representation of the West will probably come up in any kind of broad constitutional negotiation, which, of course, Quebec won't like because it will dilute their power in the Senate to kind of even things out. And the whole thing rapidly deteriorates into a mess pretty quickly, which is why we kind of really haven't seen anyone before now talk about it since Charlottetown. And the biggest question for me then is just sort of why now? Because like we're sort of saying, a lot of this is sort of trickled through, that's not to say it solves any outstanding issues, but it just sort of feels like a, let's kick up a bunch of dust to make a mess and see if we can distract from something else. Yeah, there's there's a, if not well-liked, an acceptable status quo that has emerged uh, since 92 and the failure of Charlottetown. Or even the 95 separation referendum. But we basically reached an acceptable equilibrium on the Constitution. So it kind of begs the question of what's there to gain by reopening it? I wonder if they're almost thinking, because this is a Quebec Liberals, that the federal Liberals would be more open to these discussion than conservative government, which might go... I think it really depends on what the issue is. Like, the conservatives did already recognize Quebec as a distinct society. So there's that. The conservatives have typically been a lot more sympathetic to concerns over federal intrusion into provincial jurisdictions. So like, there's a fairly strong case that you could get a Western uh, Canadian conservative prime minister to sign on to something that would limit the ability of the feds to interfere with provincial affairs, you know. The stepping on the toes of the provinces is much more being a liberal sort of thing than a conservative thing in Canada. So, you know, only some of those areas would actually be the sort of thing that maybe works well with a liberal government. But regardless of the fact, Trudeau's basically already said no to this. Yeah, I think he has shown he's having enough trouble with the legislation he's promised or has already broken promises on that opening up the Constitution and undoing his dad's legacy, I can't imagine he'd want to do that at all. I mean, he didn't say anything about the Constitution or Charter in his platform other than, you know, they're the party of the Charter, or that Bill C-51 should be amended to fix fit the Charter, which they still haven't done. So there's no gain for Trudeau to wade into this, as far as I can see. Yeah, there's just nothing really to benefit the federal government from opening up the chart, especially without a kind of, or the Constitution in general, without specific constitutional amendments they want. And the Liberals seem more or less happy with the Constitution as is. 
and they they're not really eager to change anything on that and well the other parties may have some constitutional wish lists they'd like to have some action being done on and get uh, some policy wins there they're not in a position to really do anything about it right now the other interesting sort of angle on this is how quebec's treating it as a we're bringing this to the rest of canada to start a conversation and it's hard to tell how sincere that is i sort of did a skim of the document and looked through it and some of it's like we need to talk about this but we want this and so it reads like they're sincere but then it switches to the like demands almost like yeah we want to have a conversation but really we want the five things we've been talking about for 30 years yeah, to th- happen this isn't a these are some general problems with how Canada's constitution's working for the country and you know it would improve us, our situation here a bit too if we could get these specific items in there as well it's a this is why we need to change things for Quebec's benefit, and there isn't a huge amount of why everyone else should be on board with that in there. And so I wonder if this isn't almost just going to, like usual, when Quebec and English Canada sort of butt heads, even if it's supposed to be a sincere conversation, if the rest of Canada is just going to get pissed off and go back to French-Canadian stereotypes and make fun and mock them again like usual well the quebec veto over the cross that, that's a complete non-starter in the rest of canada like no one anywhere else is going to be eager to go with that one and unless every province is given a veto in which case we've made what's, yeah what's, what's the point in opening the discussion on the constitution we're just going to make it even harder to amend it in the future and you know, there's already some problems with the constitution that are really hard to fix because more than three provinces benefit from some unequal arrangement within there which means you can't hit over the 750 formula required to amend it it's a little ridiculous that bc gets six senators when new brunswick which is has basically the same number of people as vancouver island a fraction of the size of bc in terms of area like there just isn't much to it that would su- suggest it should get 10 senators compared to six like there's, there's no rational arrangement in which we arrive at that number of senators by anything other than a historic accident but that's the sort of thing that you know because a bunch of provinces benefit from that unequal distribution you're never going to get the sufficient numbers to really make that change and move into a everyone gets a veto system is going to make that much much harder to implement in the future. The asymmetric federalism is another area where you're not likely to see the rest of Canada sign on to it. And I think kind of the overall the West sees the constitutional arrangement more or less as favoring the East overall. And the kind of Western alienation sentiments kind of died down a bit in the last 10 years or so when we had a prime minister from Alberta and kind of the West got in, so to speak. But, you know, I, I could see any sort of talk of an asymmetric federalism really not playing well, basically anywhere west of Ontario. And it's the sort of thing that I could see also really kind of stirring up a lot of kind of anger and dislike towards Quebec that they're suggesting they should get in, you know, an even sweeter deal in the Constitution 
And overall, I just see this as a recipe for kind of worse regionalism and interprovincial tensions. Yeah, I really don't know Quebec internal politics enough right now and where things are at to tell whether this is the Liberals, the Quebec Liberals actually trying to better the position of Quebec, or if they're just trying to like steal votes from the PQ and sort of separatist parties to that, find a better deal for Quebec. That would be a little bit of a risky move, though, just like these sorts of things tend to exacerbate those tensions between Quebec and the rest of Canada, which will just add fuel to the fire that is kind of the lingering sovereigntist sentiments that are I mean, slowly dying out in Quebec. Well, we'll keep our eye on it. If it becomes a really big issue, we'll dedicate more time to it. And if we have the funds, we'll throw a whole deep dive together where we get a constitutional expert on and we just pick their brain to figure out maybe we're missing something. Because I remember hearing about Meech Lake and Charlatan Accords from social studies in high school and just remembering they sounded like terrible fiascos where we tried to do everything and appeased no one. But I still find it an interesting concept and I get the idea that Quebec should actually be signed on to the charter since it's applying to them. And there's that sort of fundamental justice part of me that's like, yeah, they should at least be bought into the constitution that we're subjecting them to. And maybe there's a way to reach it. So maybe it's just genuinely optimistic. But then the other pragmatic politicians like this is a fucking terrible idea. So we'll see where it goes. And with that, let's close out this episode with some quick takes. First up, Nova Scotia had an election this week as well, and it almost became as exciting as British Columbia's as partway through the night, it looked like the Stephen McNeil liberals were going to be reduced to a minority government or a hung legislature, let's be technically correct, with the progressive conservatives sort of surging and even the NDP surging as well with their faux Bernie candidate running from the left in the province. But in the end, McNeil managed to get 27 seats, which is a a very comfortable two-seat majority in a 51-seat legislature. Now there doesn't have to be these fun deals. I know when I was watching the live stream, because I saw how close this was, at one point they were talking about absentee ballots that still had to be counted, but then they counted them in the same night. So Nova Scotia's got its shit together more than BC does, but BC's a much bigger province with more people, so it takes longer to get them around, especially when phone lines don't work, I guess. (laughs) I think the biggest story of the night, though, especially on Twitter, was how bad CBC's graphics were about displaying the election, because by the end of it, everyone was making fun of it, especially because at one point, the Liberals and PCs were tied in the vote percentage, but these little bar graphs in the corner showed the liberals way ahead and people are like that's not how a bar graph works and then they tried to justify it saying oh the length of the graph represents the number of seats they won but i found an earlier point in the night when the pcs had a higher voted percentage but fewer seats but the bar graph was showing them longer so it meant nothing cbc is just not doing graphs right and i think even the beaverton mocked their education system for it so <laughs> That's the highlights that I took from the Nova Scotia election. I guess the sort of background of Nova Scotia is the province has no money. And so every election cycle, 
the opposition party sort of promise literally anything and say, we will make life less terrible. We'll give you some money. And then they get into power and they go, well, shit, there's no money. And they have to do more cuts, raise more taxes. People get pissed off and then they go to the other. And so it's something like in the last 30 years, they haven't had two back-to-back majority governments until now, I guess. So fun times, Nova Scotia. (laughs) The saga of the federal electoral reform efforts continues to trudge along as the House of Commons this week voted on the report from the Electoral Reform Committee and whether or not to accept that recommendation. In the vote, the NDP blocked Greens and the Conservatives, plus two Liberals all voted to accept the report, and the Liberals, except their two members, all voted against it. Yeah, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, who's been constantly outspoken in favor of changing the electoral system and keeping that promise, voted for the report, as well as MP Sean Casey. It's sort of a nice symbolic stand for both of them, and I think they can sort of get away with it because they're backbenchers who've proven their commitment to this, but ultimately it's sort of a meaningless statement at this point when you have 159 liberals voting against the report on which they commissioned, on which they campaigned. Well, actually, they campaigned to change the voting system. The report didn't even get that far. It said hold a referendum on it. And it's just so sort of deflating almost to watch liberals who put forward this committee. They they didn't actually hold the majority on this committee because they gave that up. And really the only people who in the end were happy with the consensus of the report was the conservative members because the NDP and Greens wrote their own sort of addition, supplementary report and the liberals like dissented from their own report saying, yeah, but do we really need to do these things? So it was a whole messy saga and this is just kind of its unceremonious death. Yeah, although I expect the issue won't go away. Nathan Collins being traveling the country trying to stir up some anger over this and trying to you know, get a whole bunch of people to really you know come out and support this and really put pressure on the liberals to follow through. And well, he's got a fairly positive reception. I don't really see it going anywhere, at least until the next election, which you can bet the NDP and the Greens are going to be hitting the Liberals pretty hard over this issue on. Well, and then in other news, Tom Mulcair kind of put his foot deeply in his mouth, as one can do when they're sort of the outgoing leader with probably not many more fucks to give. He was quoted almost out of context this week, saying that it's maybe time to forgive Carla Homolka. Homolka, who in the early 90s with her husband Paul Bernardo were convicted of raping and murdering teenagers and Homolka also raped and murdered her sister. Not really people's most pleasant icons. Yeah, so Homolka had made news this week when the press reported that she was volunteering at her kid's school and, you know, naturally people were wondering why a convicted killer was volunteering at a children's facility and school. And, you know, a lot of people were kind of, I think, 
fairly rightly upset over the whole situation. And Tom Mulcair was asked about this, mostly in the context of, you know, should we be making any policy or legal changes surrounding it? And in his response, he suggested that it's kind of an open question on whether or not paid the debt for her crimes and, you know, whether it's time for some atonement and forgiveness and... I can sort of see where he was coming from, from a, you know, purely, there needs to be some sort of rehabilitation sort of situation, a reintegration society, but like, this is an incredibly tone-deaf way of going about it. Like, Carla Humolter is not the person you want to be using as kind of the poster child for somebody whose name gets continually dragged through the mud because of past wrongdoings, and this got a little bit of press and really become a big story and I think that's mostly because Tom Mulcair is on his way out but it's like I said is really incredibly tone deaf and like there's a lot of people out there who you know have I think a pretty strong and visceral reaction to what Mulcair and her husband did and it's just not the sort of thing that's gonna I think play well and kind of the why can't we all forgive each other kind of plays into the hippy-dippy, you know, everything about forgive kind of stereotype of the NDP. And you just kind of got to wonder what Tom Mulcair was thinking and answering the question. Well, I don't even think it gets that sort of absurd. He's maybe sort of starting to slip into the academic mindset of let's, you know, pose hypotheticals and think about these bigger questions. Because he's still in here says, you know, crimes are so horrific. It's difficult to look at a case like this otherwise than through the horror. And then from there, he kind of pivots into like the community that she's in. It's sort of up to them, whether they accept her provided all the safety is looked after. And those are sort of the academic. And like you're saying, there is a point to these questions in terms of not the extreme example, but your average offender. We don't need to, demonize them because people go through the system and when they come out we ideally want them contributing to society again and demonizing everyone who goes through a correctional center is not a good way to really stop them from ending up back there but yeah as a politician who he still is still a leader of a political party these are not the kind of hypotheticals you want to be going down because they get twisted and misinterpreted and then you get the MP for the riding where the murders happen, tweeting out, I'm from St. Catharines, this is Chris Bittle, and let me assure you, Tom Mulcair, it's not time to forgive this monster, which uh, not, is just sort of showboating at this point. And, yeah, but he also had pushback from his own party with the MPP from uh, St. Catharines as well, coming out with a statement strongly disagreeing with him on that. So it's, yeah, it's just bad politics and... I think Tom Mulcair's pretty consistently shown he does not have great political instincts. And I think this is just kind of yet another example of that. But I think most politicians would probably recognize this is not the person you want to be speculating about forgiveness with. Especially when kind of plea deal she got that was later discovered to be kind of based on some incorrect assumptions about her involvement in the whole thing. Definitely, I think, play into the aspect that, you know, she basically hasn't really kind of paid her debts to society and that this is the sort of thing where it's fun to talk about that sort of thing if you're a politician wanting to talk, you know, about, say, somebody who got busted selling a few grams of weed or something. You know, that 
if Tom Voltaire wants to make a point about the rehabilitation, you know, that's the sort of person he should be talking about on this. And this right here is just the sort of thing that would make great political attack fodder uh, if it was anyone but an outgoing party leader. The big news out of Washington today is that Donald Trump announced the U.S. is going to be pulling out of the Paris Agreements. Everyone kind of saw this coming in that Trump's been pretty negative towards, you know, actually addressing climate change or any of the sort of international agreements that have been struck on it, particularly Paris. And today he formally sent notice to Congress that he was going to be pulling out of it and suppose it's open speculation whether this was a long plan thing or if it's a distract from, you know, the ever-increasing number of scandals that he's involved in. But regardless, it's kind of a pretty big blow to the whole Paris Agreement. And again, the U.S. on board and everything, and all the other big countries was... It was definitely a challenge here in Paris, and having the U.S. drop out you know, significantly weakens it. Most of the response so far is basically being, we're going to push ahead on that. Justin Trudeau released a statement to that effect. Um, Manuel Marcon put out a statement as well, um, saying they were going to, you know, carry on with it and that they won't be going back to the negotiating table to come out with a weaker option that'll make the U.S. happy. Because you know, there won't be a Plan B because there's no Planet B. I think was what he said, or probably in French. But overall, I think it's just a fairly bad bit of news coming out of the states yeah this is like when george bush unsigned kyoto but luckily we don't have a conservative government in canada to also unsign kyoto and that's not really what killed it it was definitely the u.s pulling out then the developing countries went well if the u.s is in it why should we be committed to the same kind of goals it's good that canada's still sticking with it i mean people will try and pin the hypocrisy on Trudeau for pushing ahead pipelines while at the same time saying things like we're taking decisive and collective action to tackle climate change and have our unwavering commitment. Yeah, he's but, taking action. It's yeah, hardly decisive. Yeah, at least he's got the rhetoric there. And if, if there's one thing Trudeau has always had, it's the knack for rhetoric. Other than when he actually speaks and says a lot of ums and ahs. This is, like you say, not unexpected. Still disappointing. Elon Musk actually resigned from the his role as a presidential advisor over this. Which is keeping his word. I think if I were him, I probably wouldn't have accepted a role with Trump anyway. He might have been too optimistic that he could do good from the inside. But I still have some sort of suspicions about the whole like technocratic Silicon Valley elite that they're sort of not always looking out for everyone and more just how can we game the system. With some green concerns, as it were. But let's end on a bit more of a ridiculous story. As part of Canada 150, right now a 13,600 kilogram, six-story tall rubber duck is being towed into the Toronto waterfront. And it turns out this cost the Ontario government $121,000. And when you see images of this thing... It will give you nightmares because it is the world's largest rubber duck and it's got the most innocuous but menacing stare. It's bigger than battleships that are floating in the harbor as well. I don't know if this is like the secret weapon Kathleen Wynne is going to use to win her next election, but 
it's sort of just opened up a ton of new space for puns. The Tories are criticizing it as a colossal waste of money, and they say it's an absolute cluster duck. And the government just shot back that the opposition is just quacking much ado about nothing. And to make the story even more bizarre, there's now apparently concerns over whether or not we have acquired a counterfeit sit story tall rubber duck. The original giant rubber duck was created by a Dutch artist, and he's alleging that this one that the Ontario government has spent a whole bunch of money to bring to Canada is in fact a illegal counterfeit of his creation, and that the duck was never supposed to be used for profit, which is a, a great line that's now appeared in several news stories on the matter, and just this whole thing continues to get bizarre. The federal conservatives are demanding to know if any federal money's gone towards this. It, overall, this is just one of those weird little stories. And one of my favorite things I've seen on is the people photoshopping rubber ducks into famous Canadian historical paintings. You know, a rubber duck at the Charlottetown conference, or you know, on the Plains of Abraham. Just these, you know, hilarious. This is really part of our heritage moments, and. Overall, it's just probably the funniest story of the week by far. At the time of this recording, it remains to be seen whether or not this controversy will foul up the Canada 150 celebrations. Oh, rubber ducky, you're the one. You make bath time lots of fun. Rubber ducky, I'm awfully fond of you. Bo-bo-bo-dio. And that has been Politicos. Find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes at politicos.ca. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PoliticosPod. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show and join the Politicos community at patreon.com slash politicos. And if you have any ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening. Rubber ducky, you're so fine. And I'm lucky that you're mine Rubber ducky, I'm awfully fond of you